There we go. So this final uh, session, I'd like to start by offering some uh, concluding remarks and um, a sense of where at least my own work may be heading. And we'll call this After Buddhism as a shameless plug for the book. Um, I don't state this explicitly in the book itself, but I hope it's, uh, it's, uh, it should be quite um, an obvious uh, conclusion to draw from reading it. And namely, I'm concerned actually to articulate a Buddhist, uh, a comprehensive Buddhist um, theology, again I hate that word, but I can't think of a better one, which will allow, I think, a much more uh, grounded and uh, viable uh, conceptual framework for an engaged Buddhism. The problem I have, and I've had this for a long time, is that I think that classical uh, Buddhist uh, orthodox understandings of how the world works, of what the role of the person is in the world, the whole goal of the path, the soteriology, um, actually doesn't, uh, I feel, work towards a total engagement with the suffering of the world. And the reason for that is quite simple. If, um, as classical Buddhism maintains, whether it's Theravada, whether it's Tibetan, whether it's Zen, whether it's any other school, that the aim of the practice is to bring to an end the cycle of birth and death, or rebirth, to get out of that vicious circle, which, remember, is exactly the same goal as that you'll find in Hinduism or Jainism. It's the Indian cosmological frame. So this means that if, for example, uh, this world became uh, 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 toxified to the, degree, to, the de to the degree that life could no longer survive on its surface, or if it were subject to a nuclear holocaust, then all sentient beings on this uh, planet would then get reborn according to the um, uh, quality of their karma or their deeds. In other words, um, it would be an enormously tragic, painful uh, process, but in some ways, life would just go on in some other realm. Remember, rebirth is not just about this world. It's about a world or a universe with almost an infinite possibility of other worlds. So, the, um, so in some sense, um, it doesn't really, really matter because the karmic process will just continue in some other place. So there won't be really a, an end. There won't be any real uh, extinction. And if the purpose of the practice is to bring rebirth to an end, uh, then surely the more appropriate response would be to teach people how to live a life that would lead them to the ending of craving, 
and thereby the ending of what it is that drives the cycle of birth and death. That is classical Buddhism. Now, of course, classical Buddhism also speaks of uh, love, compassion, um, uh, seeking to alleviate the suffering of beings in any situation whatsoever. So you do have a basis for engaging with, let's say, species extinction or climate change or nuclear um, uh, disarmament. But I feel that at some level, uh, at a deep level actually, um, it doesn't uh, have a basis for taking these concerns with ultimate seriousness. Namely that if uh, life on this planet were to end, it would end, and that might be the end of it, period. We have no evidence that, there are, that this has happened in any other place in the universe. We also know from our studies of uh, the evolutionary process that the emergence of the kind of life we know and love and value uh, is extraordinarily improbable. Uh, evolution could have taken twists and turns uh, in its course which would not have resulted in, in this. Um, if, for example, that asteroid had not impacted the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs, this would still be dinosaur land. We wouldn't be around. There might be our distant mammalian ancestors scurrying around in little holes in the ground like these squirrels, but that would be it. So I'm very moved by uh, reflecting on the uh, extraordinarily improbable set of contingent circumstances that came together to give rise to to this kind of life. Uh, and that is, I mean, this is the, the only life we know, for sure. Statistically, there are probably other forms, but we'll never know about them, at least given the ability to communicate across distant swathes of space uh, at present. So the implications of rethinking the Four Noble Truths, which I feel are basically premised on this uh, metaphysics of rebirth and the ending of craving and then the ending of suffering through the ending of rebirth, um, is um, not just an intellectual preference, but actually I think it uh, reconfigures uh, this fundamental teaching of the Dharma in a way that shifts the emphasis away from a final nirvana and puts the emphasis on the cultivation of a way of life that uh, is, as I've described, an ongoing feedback loop. In other words, it's a way of living fully, uh, totally, uh, moment uh, to moment, in a constant engagement with the conditions of our experience as they present themselves to us at any given time. Um, so it becomes really a, a conceptual framework for an engaged life. That the path is the goal, as is sometimes said. So I've um, uh, put together at the very end of my book, After Buddhism, um, a series of theses, ten theses, 
which I call the Ten Theses of Secular Dharma, rather than Secular Buddhism. The Ten Theses of Secular Dharma, which try to pin down what would be the cardinal uh, points of such a, uh, a rethinking of the Dharma, which in some ways suggests what might be or what might emerge after Buddhism. And again, the subtext of this title, After Buddhism, is again looking to the possibility of another way of reconfiguring the Dharma itself for our times. So thesis number one, again, the thesis thing has echoes of Luther. I'm aware of that. But he had 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, I think it was. Huh? You're a slacker. Yeah, I'm a slacker, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry? 85 to go. 85 to go. Well, I think 10 is probably enough. Okay, so I'm just going to read them out. I might make a few comments, but I'd like to just leave you with these ideas. Uh, thesis number one. A secular Buddhist is one who is committed to the practice of the Dharma for the sake of this world alone. Two. The practice of the Dharma consists of four tasks. To embrace suffering, to let go of reactivity, to behold the ceasing of reactivity, and to cultivate an integrated way of life. Three, all human beings, irrespective of gender, race, sexual orientation, disability, nationality, and religion, can practice these four tasks. Each person, in each moment, has the potential to be more awake, responsive, and free. Four, the practice of the Dharma is as much concerned with how one speaks, acts, and works in the public realm as with how one performs spiritual exercises in private. Five, the Dharma serves the needs of people at specific times and places. Each form the Dharma assumes is a transient human creation. That's echoes of Don Cupid. Contingent upon the historical, cultural, social, and economic conditions that generated it. Six. The practitioner honors the Dharma teachings that have been passed down through different traditions while seeking to enact them creatively in ways appropriate to the world as it is now. Seven, the community of practitioners is formed of autonomous persons who mutually support each other in the cultivation of their paths. In this network of like-minded individuals, members respect the equality of all members while honoring the specific knowledge and expertise that each person brings. Eight, a practitioner is committed to an ethics of care founded on empathy, compassion, 
and love for all creatures who have evolved on this earth. Eight, nine, sorry, nine. Did I do that? Yeah, nine. Practitioners seek to understand and diminish the structural violence of societies and institutions as well as the roots of violence that are present in themselves. 10. A practitioner of the Dharma aspires to nurture a culture of awakening that finds its inspiration in Buddhist and non-Buddhist, religious and secular sources alike. So, how um, uh, might uh, I see my own work evolving in that context? Um, I'm a writer, and that uh, has been my destiny, my fate, uh, for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and writing is for me not a, an adjunct to my practice. In other words, I do my practice, I give my talks, and then I write it up. But writing is, uh, in many ways, the very core practice that I do. And um, I see my teaching um, really as an adjunct, in a way, to the writing. But of course, in reality, the two mutually support each other. In giving a lectures to you here, through engaging in discussions, getting your feedback, of course, that feeds into my writing process. But in, um, but in, in the core of what I consider my practice is this uh, ongoing engagement with ideas this ongoing engagement with how to translate these ideas and values into a language that speaks to our condition today. And that's what I've been doing ever since I, I started uh, publishing. Initially translating classical texts, the Bodhicari Avatara, for example, uh, and other uh, discourses and teachings. Uh, but I see translation not just about translating suttas, which I also uh, continue to do, but translation in the sense, the literal sense, uh, of carrying over something from one place to another. That's what it means to translate, to carry over. So translation is both translation of text, but also translation of teachings, values, practices, into forms and languages um, uh, that speak to the sort of condition we find ourselves in now. Um, this book, After Buddhism, I th in some ways uh, draws together many threads of ideas that I've been exploring for the last 40 odd years and, uh, a, and, and, and seeks to somehow achieve a kind of synthesis um, what um, I refer to in the books as a systematic theology. Um, there's no theos in this theology, but I use the word theology because that's the kind of discourse that I, I resonate with most closely in our own culture. I don't think of this as philosophy, I don't think of it as psychology, I don't think of it as religious studies or Buddhist studies. The closest I come to is the works of 
basically largely uh, radical uh, liberal theologians, both from the Protestant and more recently the Catholic tradition. Um, I've recently been very inspired by the work of a man called Gianni Vattimo, G-I-A-N-N-I-V-A-T-T-I-M-O, who's an Italian um, philosopher um, who's recently returned to the Roman Catholic Church. I can't imagine the Roman Catholic Church is terribly happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very public uh, gay figure in Italy. Um, he's just published a book called After Christianity. <laughs> Another book called A Farewell to Truth, both of which have influenced my own thinking. And he puts his money where his mouth is. Uh, he's also a member of the European Parliament. So he's a figure I find immensely inspiring. So um, this book for me is a, is a kind of culmination uh, of all of this work. And I actually find it quite difficult at the moment to see where, um, where I'll be, you know, where my writing will take me next. Um, I have a couple of projects on the back burner. One is um, a book on solitude, which is based on uh, four, what I think are the four earliest poems within the Atakavaga, which is at, at the, the chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 of the Atakavaga uh, in the Sutta Nipata, all of which are eight-verse poems. Uh, K.R. Norman argues that they are the core of the Atakavaga, and the Atakavaga is the core of the Sutta Nipata, which is the, you know, the earliest stratum of text within the Pali Canon. Uh, another book I plan to work on, it, well, I'm already working on it, but I haven't started writing yet, is a comparative uh, study for practitioners between early Buddhism and Hellenistic philosophy. In other words, the skeptics, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. Uh, to draw lines of linkage uh, between these two movements of practical philosophy, which I think bear enormous uh, uh, commonalities. Um, and yet, strangely, nothing, no one's actually written at length about this. And the, this is kind of a passion I have at the moment, because I think if, if, if that uh, thesis is, is correct, uh, that not only are these traditions, in a sense, singing from the same kind of hymn sheet, uh, working within the same thought world, premised on very similar uh, convictions, um, it would also potentially um, reveal a common historical basis that would unite the Buddhist and the Greek traditions. That's maybe a little ambitious, but my intuition is that that might in fact be the case. Um, Although I don't declare this very much in public, my writing uh, also um, is uh, um, accompanied by a parallel process, uh, which is uh, the creation of art, uh, visual art. 
uh, primarily collage uh, of found materials and uh, photography. And this goes on in a, this is a non-conceptual, non-verbal um, uh, uh, parallel or counter, uh, not counter movement, a sort of parallel process that underpins the um, writing um, in a way that frees me from having to think in words, but I think in images, um, whether it's photographic images or simply the construction of images out of found materials. Um, also, I should bring uh, here the project that uh, Sherry and I have been working on for some years now, Mara the Opera. Uh. <laughs> Uh, we've done uh, the first act, and the prologue and the first act, which has actually received a, its premiere, I think, in, was it, was it, was it the, the Met or? No, it was in. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm writing the libretto, Sherry is writing the music, obviously. And um, I've been sidetracked from this by this book, but next spring I'm going to get round to finishing the second act and possibly an epilogue. Um, so, you know, that's in the, stay tuned. That's in the offing as well. Well, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, it's, a fairly it's a fairly small scale, performable piece with probably, what, about half a dozen performers and how many musicians? A small sort of... About seven or eight. Seven or eight? Oh, I see. Oh, oh, wait, the orchestra, I'm going to expand it, but the, uh, but just three characters? Three characters, that's right, that change roles, yeah. Okay. Um, and, okay, so that's, you know, where my work goes, and I don't know where it will lead. I'm more interested in the, the unfolding of this process, uh, which, again, I think of very much as a, as a metaphor for the unfolding of this positive feedback loop of the four tasks and the eightfold path and everything. I don't see these things as at all separate. Uh, again, the, the art, uh, the writing, uh, is the practice. It's not, it's not separate from it at all. Um, I'm also aware that I'm now 62. It takes me about five, six years to write a book, so I've probably got two or three more before my faculties diminish and um, I may not, and of course I might die, of course, who knows. Um, people, I know, I always read the obituary section in the newspaper, and I'm aware that more and more people are uh, receiving obituaries who are younger than me, which is always a bit spooky. And um, so who knows, that's the project, and I'll take it as far as I can. The other project that I'm involved in is uh, the Bodhi Institute, um, which I think uh, some of you are probably aware of. There's even a, at least one person in this room who's going to sign up for it. Maybe two, we'll see. Maybe three, we'll see. Um, uh, I should also just flag that the, it looks as though for legal reasons we're gonna have to call it the Bodhi College uh, we ran into legal prob pro problems and we were poorly advised um, 
about the usage of the name. It's a, it's a real pain in the neck. But this is bureaucracy, British bureaucracy, we're having to deal with. But it doesn't really make much difference to what we'll be doing at all. And uh, this program is uh, one that we've, uh, four of us have, um, have worked on now over the last couple of years. It was actually conceived here in BCBS about two, two and a half years ago. Uh, John Peacock and uh, Kinchino were teaching in, um, and Christina Feldman were teaching in IMS. I was here at a secular Buddhist colloquium at the BCBS. We met up uh, one afternoon for tea and realized we, were, we all had very similar ideas of creating such a uh, college such an educational program that is focused entirely upon uh, the study and practice of early Buddhism. Uh, in other words, we're, going to, we're not going to offer courses outside of the realm of early Buddhism. Uh, and that will include, obviously, the suttas. Uh, for John and Akinshina, it will also include the Abhidhamma, um, it will also include in every course uh, formal meditation retreats within the broad Satipatthana um, frame. And I will be running uh, a program, a two-year program on secular dharma, which will be three modules a year for two years with uh, mentorship and Skype discussion fora as well. And the four of us will run what is probably our core program which is the Committed Practitioners Program, which will also run for two years, uh, with four modules uh, a year for two years. And that hopefully will then develop into a, a two-year cycle. We'll start such programs again. And also we hope to expand into distance learning courses that will make these programs available online. And we also will be offering week-long modules, uh, study modules, primarily in England, but also in Switzerland, in Germany, in Italy. We envisage this as a European venture. We don't plan to run courses here in the United States. Um, we want to focus in our own backyard and also um, acknowledge the um, different uh, cultures and languages of the European, of Western Europe, and try to break out of this kind of Anglo-centric uh, teaching of the Dharma. Uh, this next year we'll have courses offered by uh, Analayo, um, Ajahn Suchito will offer a, a week. Um, John will do a week on the Atakavaga. Um, Akinshino will offer a couple of courses on Buddhist psychology. Um, but again, it's a work in progress. You can um, find us on the internet, um, bodhi-institute.org. Uh, that'll probably change to bodhi-college.org, but you'll, the Bodhi Institute oh, domain name will remain active, so you can always find us there. Or you can write to me either through my website or I'll put my name on the, my personal email on the, on the list. So that's kind of uh, brings things to a close. Thank you very much for bearing with me. I hope 
I haven't said anything that has upset anyone. If so, I apologize. And um, I hope to meet you at some future point, either here in the States or uh, in Europe or who knows, somewhere else. <laughs> okay, so um, we'll end here. Switch off the thingy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.